<clears throat> so moving forward, over the past about six to eight weeks or so, there's been a few teachings that have been kind of sidetracks, but the common theme over the past couple months has been how you manage and steward your time, your money, your physical life, your relationship with God and your relationships with people. And so we've gone over all those things. They've all been covered. However, today I'm going to essentially summarize all those things, one, and wrap it up specifically in the context of how you would live a day in the Lord, if that makes sense. So what should your daily life look like in order to invest well and steward well every area of your life? And so this has to do with, there's six categories, uh, I mean, really five. Um, one of them is very closely connected to the other. And that's going to be, first is your money, your physical body, which is what last week was about. The time you give to spreading the gospel to those who are unbelievers. The time you give for discipling or edifying those who are already believers. Your time for prayer. Uh, and then your time for study, studying the word of renewing your mind. That prayer and study are kind of two in one. And the last one is the time you set aside for rest or joy which is also an important part of your daily life. So we're going to go over all of these things. And my goal with this is to do so in a timely manner, give extra time for questions to go over anything that you guys may be thinking about. And then whatever it transitions to after that, we will uh, we'll get into. So we're going to take these, these one by one. And what I'm going to do is give you guys examples of how Jesus and the apostles managed or stewarded this particular area of their life and how they incorporated it in their daily schedule. So you'll get examples. Most of these are just literally examples of in the Gospels of how Jesus lived his daily life and how he managed his time and what he did in his schedule. Most of these things were a daily practice for Jesus. And they're so human that they almost don't appear spiritual. And that's why it's very common for us to just kind of read over them when you read the Gospels. Because to give you one example, a lot of us miss this. Okay. When Jesus fed the 5,000... And they had 12 baskets left over. One of the things he told his disciples was gather everything up and take it with so that nothing is lost. There's an example of Jesus being a good steward of leftovers. Right? Now, that, again, doesn't seem super spiritual. But it is because he's being a good steward. And that's just one example. And you're going to see these throughout the Gospels where Jesus uses his time, his money, his resources, uh, his body well. So we're going to look at those examples and see how it applies to daily life. So, make sense? Sound good? You guys ready? Okay. Let's look first at how Jesus and the apostles stored up money and how they used it. So first of all, we're going to look at Luke Chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, we're going to start on verse 1 and read through verse 3. I'm just going to go through a bunch of references here to give you guys places you can look at this in scripture. 
Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1 through verse 3 says, Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Now, if you pause there, it just tells you all the work that Jesus is doing and what he's focusing on. Now, anytime you have any kind of work, there's always a requirement for resources and or financial support. Next verse tells you how Jesus got that financial support, at least one of the examples. It says, And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for him from their substance. This is an example of how Jesus was given partial support financially from others whom he invested in spiritually. In this case, he cast out demons out of one of these women who is Mary Magdalene. And many of the people that he healed or taught or called to follow him gave of their resources to help support Jesus. This is a principle, number one, that simply tells you that being financially well taken care of requires you giving your time for other people. Paul teaches this in that if you give or minister to people out of spiritual things, they will minister to you out of their material things. The motive, of course, is not money. In other words, you don't give to other people of your time and of your spiritual resources just so you can get paid, of course. The point is that if you invest your time to serve other people, you give and it's given unto you. Sometimes we take that to mean if you give away a lot of money, people will give a lot of money back to you. But that's just one example as far as giving goes. If you give spiritually to people, in other words, take your time to serve others in anything, it allows for their heart to be open to then invest in you materially. Because when you give, it's given back to you. So that's just the overall principle. Jesus lived by this. He was better financially taken care of the more that he served other people because the generosity he showed inspired their generosity. Amen? So that's the first thing. I'm just going to list off these references. I'll quote them to you. We're not going to turn to all of them, but one is Ephesians 4, verse 28. Um, if we could throw that, throw that up on the screen, that would be awesome. Ephesians 4, 28 says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, so that he may have to give to those who are in need. This is the verse that states explicitly in the New Testament why you're supposed to get a job. <laughs> it says... If you used to be a thief, stop. Cut it out. Then he says, the solution is get a job. Amen. <laughs> now, why do you get that job? Why should you work? To give to him who has need. Now, we know one example is in 1 Timothy 5 that says, if you fail to provide for your own, you have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. So this verse, Ephesians 4.28, is not saying that you just get a job to give all your money away and neglect your own family and household, okay? The first you provide for is your own, okay? Take care of your needs first. Then what you have left over, we're going to get into more detail about exactly how this looks later, is meant to be given to other people. That's what excess is for. Yes? The first Timothy one about if you don't provide for your own, yeah. that one. 
First Timothy 5, I believe it's verse 8. But let me verify that real quick. Verse 8. Yeah, First Timothy 5, 8. Oh, yeah, it's on the screen. Perfect. Okay, so uh, this one we are going to turn to. Go to 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 8. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses seven through eight says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. When he says we didn't eat anyone's bread free of charge, this essentially means you should not expect for other people to pay for your food. You should be able to pay for your own stuff. That's what this is talking about. And the way that you do that is work. And the apostles did this to set an example. Jesus also set an example in this in uh, Mark chapter six, verse three. It says Jesus was a carpenter. We're not given a lot of details as to how much work Jesus put into this carpentry, but we know most of it, most of that time and most of that work would have been spent or would have been uh, he would have been employed in that before he began his ministry most of the time. After he began his ministry, I think it's probably likely that some of the time he did give some of his labor to that carpentry. And the reason why was to set an example, just like the example that was set by the apostles, which is that you should be able by your labor to provide for yourself given that no one else gives to you. You should be able to provide for yourself by yourself without needing another person's support so that you're not eating, eating anyone else's bread free of charge. That's the point. And so that you set an example and that you don't become a burden to anyone. And that is referenced in first Thessalonians two verses eight through nine. We won't read it. We can put it up on the screen. That would be awesome. But first Thessalonians 2 verses 8 through 9 says the purpose, one of the purposes of working is so that you're not a financial burden to anyone. So if we go back to what we started with, with Jesus, he was a carpenter, just like the apostles had jobs to provide for their own first. But they invested much of their time in other people spiritually so that their gener generosity would draw the generosity of others to them. The balance is you work to provide for yourself while also knowing that if you are generous to others, God will also provide for you through them in time of need. That's what this is about. Make sense? Okay, so next example, this is about savings. Jesus saved money, as did the apostles. In fact, we're given a specific instruction in 1 Corinthians that tells us to do so. The first is John chapter 12, verse 6, that makes a reference to Jesus having a treasury. So it's not explicit, doesn't specifically say Jesus saved money, but it mentions that he had a treasury. He had his own account, if you will, where he took all the money that either he made or that was given to him. And it also says Judas Iscariot was in charge of managing that and that he also stole from it uh, during Jesus' ministry. So, um, <laughs> and what's interesting is that Jesus knew the hearts of all, right? 
Jesus knew that Judas was doing that, and yet he still put Judas in charge of it, which tells you that Jesus wasn't worried, right? So he, Jesus was not worried because he knew that even if people like Judas stole all the money that was given to him, he would work to provide for his own if he had to, right? So he had his own work, and then he had the generosity of others. So it's okay to receive from other people. Jesus did, so did the apostles, but he also had a job. The next is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. This one I would like to read. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints. In other words, that means gathering money together to support the church. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So on the first day of the week, Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says that the church came together. So gathering on a certain day of the week that was expected by the community has been a common practice all the way from the beginning. What he's telling the church is you should, every time you gather, set money aside so that you have something stored up that's always ready to be given out of in case there is a need that arises. And he says, so that there's no collections when I come. That means if I show up in a gathering of the church and I have a need or I know someone who has a need, you shouldn't all be scrambling to make it happen and waste time at that moment. He's saying, have money set aside continually so that when a need arises, it's ready to go. That's the point. This is about savings. And in this context, it's about the church community. But this also means it is a wise thing for your own family, because you're also part as a family, part of the household of God, to save money and store it up so that when a spontaneous, spontaneous need arises, you're not scrambling to meet that need. It's always, there's always some kind of store ready to be able to provide for it. That's what this scripture is about. So all these examples tell you that Jesus and the apostles worked. They were also in part supported by the generosity of others. They also saved money and they also gave. This is the last example. Uh, the, the most prominent example of this would be in John chapter six, uh, which is just one of four accounts where Jesus fed 5,000 and then the 4,000 a second time. This is where Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes to feed a lot of people. And this tells you, uh, and the, the way that you look at the story when you read it, is that Jesus relied on the Father to produce a miracle to provide for others. But, get this, even if the Father did not produce this miracle, they could have paid for that much food. The verse specifically states in a couple of accounts that his disciples said, Lord, shall we go and spend 200 denarii to buy food for all these people? Now, the reason why they said that was because they could. That was the point. Jesus did have enough money to buy that much bread. It was, he didn't have to do this miracle because he was cheap and poor. Okay. He did the miracle to show the glory of God, but he could have paid for it if he needed to. And this is the point. 
Relying on God for miracles does not mean you're financially irresponsible. Saving, making money to be able to provide for yourself is very important. But the demonstration that is shown here is that Jesus gave out of what he had to provide for other people. And the apostles did the same. The church is actually encouraged in Romans 15. Uh, it actually states, you know, we should, I didn't write this down, but we should turn and look at this because a lot of believers don't uh, notice this when you read about it. So go to Romans 15 real quick. Um, we will read in... Verse 25, Romans 15, starting in verse 25. It says, But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. This is a verse where it actually states it is a duty. In other words, it is a mandate and or responsibility to minister financially or give financially to people who have helped you spiritually. That's what this verse is about. In other words, we are responsible to have money that we can give to others, whether it's because of a material need and to be generous for that, or because of a way in which they've invested in us spiritually. Giving to them in turn materially is considered a responsibility in scripture. Uh, it's also a privilege, and that's why it says, it pleased them, indeed. So it should please you, you should be able to do so cheerfully. But in order to do so cheerfully, and not grudgingly or of necessity, you have to understand how finances in the kingdom of God works, which is that when people give to you spiritually, there is just as much generosity and sacrifice in that as there is in finances. So there should be this constant giving and receiving in the church community, whether that's financial or spiritual. And Jesus and the apostles modeled all of this. So for just to wrap it up, Jesus and the apostles worked, they saved money, and they gave money. We should do the same, which means when you work, you should have money set aside to save, and you should have money set aside to give. Always. Who do you provide for first out of the money you make? Your own household and your family, right? Who do you provide for next? Others. In the church, specifically. Then after that, Others, right? Yep, other people with needs, exactly. So if you're just to, you know, when you're working on your budget, if you guys have a budget, my wife and I have been working on this. We didn't have a budget for a while. We, turns out it's helpful. <laughs> we simply made a decision that out of the money that we make, we're going to make sure that we can provide for our household out of this amount. This is what we need, just what we need. Anything excess is not, what providing for our household is about, what we need to be sustained. Everything left over, just like Jesus modeled, take up everything left over so that nothing is lost. When he fed the 5,000, this is what Jesus exemplified. Then some of it was saved and some of it was given. 
It's up to you to decide who you give it to, but it essentially means you should have whatever's left over for giving and for saving. And some of that saving is actually for giving. That's another thing to think about because Paul had the church, which is the families of the church, the believers, set aside money just so it was ready to give. So just keep that in mind. Okay, so that's the example that was set by Jesus and the apostles in their finances. We can learn a lot from that. Next, physical health. So we've gone over this a lot the past couple weeks, but just to keep it short, Jesus and the apostles kept themselves physically healthy. And as Dave mentioned in his recap, it was part of it was to stay useful for any labor that God would have called them to so that they would have the energy to do so, regardless of what the calling was. If you're physically unhealthy, it makes it difficult to labor well. That's the point. If you want to labor well, being physically healthy is essential. We've gone over this before, but Jesus and the apostles fasted. You can read about Jesus fasting in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. They did this to keep the flesh subdued with discipline and self-control. We've gone over 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27 before, but you can write that reference down if you are not familiar with it. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27, Paul said, I discipline my body. One translation says, I beat my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. It says that self-discipline in the previous verse is so that you are temperate, which means self-controlled in all things. Physical discipline is about being self-controlled, first of all, and second, so that in the work of the Lord, you are not disqualified. The Greek word means useless or worthless. So on the contrary, to be useful to the kingdom of God, you need self-discipline and self-control. You accomplish that with exercise and with fasting. And note that the Greek word for I discipline my body, as translated, I beat my body, literally means you should be hard on your body when you exercise. That's the point. In other words, if you're not sweating, and if you're not sore, <laughs> something's wrong, right? So you should be sweating, you should be sore. That's the point. Beat the, beat the body. That's what it literally means. So don't take it easy on yourself. That's the point. That produces self-control. That makes you useful always for the kingdom of God. Uh, one the only example we have of this with Jesus in terms of his physical discipline was simply his fasting. But I can tell you that I haven't done this, but if you fast for 40 days, it is, it is very hard. <laughs> it's very difficult on your body. And that simply tells us at least that Jesus believed in this principle of, of beating the body to keep himself, to keep, his, the, to, to keep the flesh under. Okay, next, we'll move on to your relationships. There's two, essentially two kinds of relationships you will have in your life aside from your immediate family. But remember that Jesus viewed his biological family differently than we do. When there's one case where Jesus was being called upon by his mother and his, his siblings. They're trying to get his attention while there's a huge crowd around him. And his disciples say, you know, Lord, your brother and your, your mother and your brothers are trying to talk to you. And he looked at the crowd, uh, or pointed at the crowd, gestured to them, and said, 
the people who hear the word of God and keep it, they are my mother and my sister and my brothers. So he, he kind of brushed off his biological family, um, which doesn't mean, of course, that you're rude to your family. It's not the point. The point is that those who are part of your family spiritually actually take precedence over those who are your biological family. The reason why is because oftentimes your biological family does not follow Jesus. And the Bible says to do good first to those who are of the household of faith, which means serving those who are of or part of the church in your community. If they hear the word of God and keep it, which they would be if they're part of the church, take precedence over biological family that does not follow Jesus. And sometimes this is offensive to biological family. I can imagine Jesus' mother and sister and brothers were also offended by it. But this is what Jesus taught, right? So this, this means, yes, you have responsibility to your biological family, but it's up to you to understand the balance. But overall, there's two categories of your relationships. There's believers and there's unbelievers. People who follow Jesus and people who do not. Every interaction that you have with a person, the Bible says, judge not according to the flesh, which means you have to see people for who they are spiritually. They are either in Christ or they are not. They are either saved or they are not. And depending on which of those two categories they are in, it changes your approach to that relationship. You are not going to interact with a believer the same way you will with an unbeliever, right? The Bible says you're not supposed to have companionship with unbelievers. In other words, you don't run with them, Peter says, in the same flood of dissipation, which means you don't live their lifestyle. You're set apart, right? For believers, you have companionship because you're in agreement. You follow the same Lord, obey the same word. Make sense, right? So the first thing we're going to go over is your relationship to unbelievers. Jesus and the apostles gave time daily to spreading the gospel. Daily. Now, how much time you give to this depends on your own schedule, of course, and how much time you choose to give to it. But one example you can look at is Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44, which we will go to for Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. This is just one of many, many examples in the Gospels, but this is just one that stood out to me when I was preparing for this teaching. So Luke 4, verse, starting verse 31, says, He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. In other words, he found times when he knew people were going to be gathered together, and he would teach them. These are unbelievers at this point. They have not heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ yet. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice. I'm just going to go over this quickly. He cast out the demon. Long story short. So you have him teaching. You have him casting out demons. Verse 37 says, And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, he arose from the synagogue. So he gets done teaching. He gets done casting out demons. Another account says he also healed people at this point as well. He entered Simon's house. So he's staying in someone's house. 
and spending time with them. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. Now you have him healing. Verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. He rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew, uh, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now, when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. We'll pause there because this transitions to a separate part of Jesus' daily life. But this passage we just read is covering a few weeks, but it also notes a singular day as well. It tells you he would get up, he would find a place where people gathered who did not hear the gospel yet. He would teach them, he would heal their sick, he would cast out demons. Then he would find someone's home to go into to spend time with them. He would often eat with them. Then when the sun was setting, he, was, he would leave. Sometimes he would pray at night. Sometimes he would rise early in the morning and pray, which we'll get into momentarily here in terms of his prayer life. But first of all, this is just one example that, tell you, that tells you that Jesus had a daily practice of reaching unbelievers. And he acted so urgently and diligently in it that when he finished his teaching in a particular city, he specifically told his disciples, okay, it's time to go to the next one. Immediately. He gets done in one city, wakes up the next morning and says it's time to go. And he went to the next one and did it all over again. Now, the part we're going to make note of here that's a little bit more practical for us is the time that Jesus spent in people's homes. So I'm just going to list off these references, write them down for your own study. We're not going to go through all of them for the sake of time. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. Mark chapter 2, verse 15. In Luke chapter 19, this is a little bit more reference, uh, verses 1 through 10. Did anyone miss any one of those? Okay. These are all examples where Jesus participated in evangelism by means of entering into people's houses. We all can do this. And in many cases, Jesus didn't go in with a specific agenda. One is Zacchaeus. You guys are familiar with this story the really short guy who climbed up the tree, right? He sees Zacchaeus in the tree. This is Luke 19. He calls to him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm meeting at your place tonight. And Zacchaeus is super excited. He gets down from the tree, goes to his house, prepares a meal. Jesus sits down with Zacchaeus and eats with him. Another example is he calls uh, Matthew, also named Levi, who was a tax collector, said, Matthew, follow me. He's an unbeliever. Matthew hears the gospel. Then it says Jesus entered Matthew's house and many tax collectors and sinners came to him and he dined with them. And then it says the Pharisees disapproved of it. They tried to judge him. And then Jesus ends up teaching the Pharisees something to correct them about their disapproval of his actions. Now, Jesus, there is no record of Jesus saying anything to the people he dined with at least that was prepared, except that when a comment came up that was incorrect, he corrected it. Which tells you Jesus gave time intentionally to simply build relationship with unbelievers. And in his case, it was usually having them in a home with him, whether theirs or someone else's, to eat. He would build relationship with these people. He didn't make 
companions out of them in the same way that he did out of his 12 disciples. We know that. <clears throat> but he considered it an essential work to build relationship with unbelievers and eat with them, have, build some kind of relationship where he would have a voice in their lives. And people wanted to eat with him. Tax collectors and sinners wanted to spend time with him. And so for us, this simply means that on some kind of a regular basis, it doesn't mean it has to happen every day, we should be giving time to building relationships with unbelievers. Because Jesus did this consistently. Now, this can mean you go into their home, you invite them into yours. Both are valuable, depending on the situation. Spend time with them, build a relationship, and don't go into it with a specific agenda that you have to just machine gun the gospel onto them in a first meeting, okay? Depending on the relationship, sometimes that is appropriate. I've, there's been times where somebody wanted to hear the gospel and they kept on asking questions, and so, so I shared it. But just the other day, I invited a neighbor on a walk with me, and we went on a walk and talked about one of his interests the whole time and didn't talk about Jesus. And that's okay. Why? Because Jesus did it. And when he had the opportunity, he shared. But it was very important to him to build these relationships. And so the, the, two, the two contexts he's doing this is in his teaching and his preaching in synagogues or crowds of any sort, healing and casting out demons. The second was the time he spent in people's homes to build relationships with unbelievers. We should be doing both. This means it's good to make a practice out of sharing the gospel with people when you're out and about and also inviting them into your home or going into theirs to build relationship. We should be involved in both. That's what this is about. That's the kind of interaction you should have with unbelievers on a regular basis. If it's not daily, you should at least plan to do it weekly. As, as a bare minimum, anybody can do this. You can have one day a night where you say, I'm going to invite somebody into my home. And this also carries into believers, which is the next uh, relationship you're going to have in your life. Jesus gave time daily to teaching and building up his disciples, which would be for us, the church, people who are fellow, fellow saints. We should daily edify the body, which can be make disciples and serve one another. A few examples of this in Jesus' life. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And Mark chapter 4, verses 33 through 34. This is an example where Jesus specifically pulls aside 12 of his disciples to call them as apostles. And Mark 3 says it was so that they would be able to be with him and that he would send them out to preach. Mark chapter 4 in that passage I had you guys write down says that he after teaching the crowds in parables, would always pull his disciples aside and explain all things to them in private. Which essentially tells you that the relationship you should have with other believers is that you have a closer relationship with them than you have with unbelievers, obviously because you're on the same page in terms of what you stand by. You have a more intimate relationship, you should, with believers, and you should take time to build them up and serve them. That can mean helping discuss or teach things that maybe you don't quite understand or you're studying in the word. That's kind of the spiritual side of things. And you also have Galatians saying in love, serve one another. So you should take time 
If a believer around you has need, whether it's in regards to their household, their finances, their relationships, their time, they need help with their family. In other words, just serve each other. That's what this is about. Build each other up in that way. Encourage each other. The Bible also says exhort one another daily while it is still called the day. Hebrews 10 talks about that. Find ways, essentially, that you can encourage your fellow believer, spend time with them to study, spend time with them to eat together. That's why gathering as a church is important. That's why we do what we do here on Sundays and also in the house churches during the week. So find ways to spend time with other believers. Jesus did this daily. Now, this does not mean that every day you have to have a Bible study with a believer, but this simply means that you can do something. You can serve someone in some way, even if it's small, every day. You can exhort someone in something, even if it's small, every day. It can be a text message. It can be a phone call. It can be a coffee meeting. You can get up a little bit early before you go to work and maybe get breakfast with someone. Whatever it is, Jesus did this on a daily basis. He was always having a separate relationship with his 12 disciples where he invested in them more privately. And this is something that we should do for our fellow believer as well. Um, more scriptural examples, references that you guys can write down. These are all from the book of Acts. And these are examples of how the apostles took time aside separately to serve other believers that they already knew. Acts 11, verses 22 through 26. Acts 14, verses 21 through 28. Acts 15, verse 36. And Acts 16, verses 4 through 5. I'm going to turn to one of these just because it is so simple, so straightforward, but also so effective. So the last one I mentioned to you, Acts 16, verses 4 through 5. Guys, this is so basic that anybody can do this. If you have any kind of maturity in your life and you're working with another believer who is wanting to mature, this is so simple. Anybody can do this. Acts 16, verse 4. As they went through the cities, this is in relationship to other believers, they delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. This connects a very simple activity to the church being strengthened. And all it says is they delivered to them the decrees to keep. Here's why this is so simple. So many believers are stuck because they look at the Bible as a whole and they just see so many different things that it tells us to do a bajillion different kinds of instruction. And there's so much of it, especially if you don't understand the difference between the Old and New Testament. You have all these laws in the law of Moses, plus the commandments in the New Testament, and they just go, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to read. I don't know where to start. There's, this is a huge book. And it says what strengthened the churches is the apostles went to all these people and just told them what they needed to do. And they kept it very simple. If you look at the decrees they gave to them to, to keep, read uh, Acts 15. It is so simple. They gave them a simple instruction that says, you guys should avoid these things and you should focus on doing this thing. And that strengthened the church. This is so simple. Sometimes for a believer to grow, all they need is a clear picture of what they're supposed to do. And it's that simple. And any of you guys can do this. 
If you got a believer who needs to mature, give them a really basic example that you practice of what they should do to grow in their faith. And it can be as simple as read this passage of scripture, do this for a person, find a way to serve someone else, make it simple. Here's something you can read. Here's what you should avoid. Here's what you should focus on. It can be simple and this strengthens the churches and anybody can do this. So that's just one example. So to summarize the past, these last two points, Jesus and the apostles gave time daily to relationship with unbelievers and relationship to believers. Exactly what they did was up to them to determine. So exactly what you do is up to you to determine, but you should give some time to either one or both of those things on a daily basis, ideally. But depending on your schedule, it can be every other day, it could be weekly. In other words, just give some time to this. It's important. Yes, did you have a comment? Uh, you talked about um, they gave teaching to the churches, which kind of implies a long-distance relationship with another Christian or body of Christians. Is that the extent of a long-term, um, long-distance relationship, that example that we have? Because a lot of us have Christians that are really far away from us. Mm -hmm. If you look at the example of the apostles, if they couldn't do anything else, they wrote a letter. Which for us, we have a little bit more opportunity. That can be a text or a phone call. But there's several scriptures that mention this. It says that Paul said this, I desire more eagerly to see your face. Which means they made it their goal and best case scenario to be with somebody in person whenever possible. So when it came to a long distance relationship, what the apostles did was they would have some kind of correspondence periodically through letters, and then they would visit on some kind of circuit. And so for you, that basically means it's good if you have a long distance relationship to visit when you can in person. Otherwise, phone calls, FaceTime, Zoom, there's a whole bunch of different options. Um, and if Paul had access to what we have today, he definitely, he would have made use of it. Um, and I can't imagine how effective he'd be if he had the technology we have. And even with the technology we have, we usually do a pretty sorry job. So I would just say overall, make it your goal just like Paul. He set this example, when you can visit in person, you should, because that's best, best case scenario. When you can't, you can use your phone. Um, so long distance relationships, the extent is in many cases gonna be correspondence, through the technology we have and then visiting when you can. So just to keep things simple. Um, so before I move on to the <clears throat> next point, just to make sure this is all clear, are there any comments or questions just briefly about the difference between your relationship with believers and unbelievers? Is that clear to everyone? Yeah. Um, with your relationship with other fellow believers, like how Jesus, uh, like he had 12 people that he spent most of his time with, should there be uh, people that like maybe you naturally get along with most or that you're most drawn to that you spend most of your time with, or should you be spending time with all the, the believers? Sure. Great question. So with your relationship with believers, there's kind of two different kinds of relationships. There's going to be the people that you spend most of your time with in terms of fellowship friendships, and then there's people that you have a relationship with that it's more focused on discipling them. It's a little bit more intentional in that sense. Both are valuable. Both are just as essential. One feeds you in some cases more than the other. In other words, 
when you have really strong friendships with other believers, that's going to build you up in a way that you're not going to see any other way if all you did was just do Bible studies with believers. That makes sense. Um, so you need to have strong friendships. And, but you also need to have relationships with believers where you're helping, actually helping them, investing in them, discipling them spiritually. In Jesus' example and in the apostles' example, they had people that they were discipling, but then they also had closer relationships. Paul had a Barnabas and a Timothy, which means he had somebody he was close friends with, and then he had somebody that was younger than him that he spent a lot of his time with in terms of discipling him, and that was Timothy. Um, and Jesus had the same thing with his disciples. He had Peter, James, and John, which were three out of the 12 that he spent more time with privately, and then he had the, just the 12 overall. So I would say for just a good balance in your life, you should have a smaller number of believers that you spend more time with in terms of your fellowship, your friendships, your close relationships, that it's going to look, be more like a Paul Barnabas type, type relationship. And then you should have believers that maybe are at a different spot spiritually, they're less mature and they just need help with discipleship and you should spend time with them as well in terms of serving them in that way. doesn't mean you can't also be friends with them. It just means there's going to be a different kind of relationship. It's a slightly different dynamic because of a different, the difference of the relationship you have with them. So does that make sense? Does that clear that up? Okay. Um, all right. Any last questions or comments about that? Yeah. Well, I like what you said about the non-believers, um, uh, you know, going for a walk. And I, I really believe we have to build a relationship with him first. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen that in my life where I've done things with non-believers. And then when I do invite them to a Bible study or uh, speak uh, of Jesus and bring the gospel, they're more receptive because I have earned their respect and their trust. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, it's, it's a lot of work because you have to be on top of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but constantly, uh, even inviting uh, a, a Jewish lady to a Christmas dinner, mm -hmm. you know, being brave to mm -hmm. do those things, and then uh, possibly she will come to a Bible study. But just putting the effort to um, to the non-believers, it yes. takes a little work. Yep, it takes work. It is labor. Yes. It was part of Jesus' labor, right? Build relationship when you can. Sometimes you can't, and that's just moment-to-moment -moment encounters, you will have both. There's been, there was one time recently where we had a neighbor over to our house and most of the conversation, he was asking me questions about what I believed. And I didn't have to do much. And of course I'm going to answer his questions. You know, of course I'm going to preach the gospel because he was interested in it. But in some cases you just simply can't do that. And you have to use your own discernment and wisdom to judge the situation to know exactly what's going on. Sometimes it's appropriate to get into the gospel immediately. Sometimes it's not. And it depends on the person. And usually every person's different. So just got to be sensitive to that. Okay. So second to last thing has to do with prayer and study. Jesus and the apostles did this. Uh, the gospel of Luke has most of the examples. So we'll go back to the verse that we just read a little bit ago. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and verse 42. Luke 4 verse 42. <clears throat> it says, Now when it was day, 
he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. I love that verse. I alluded to it earlier because he just spent a ton of time with some people and they love him at this point, right? And he says, guys, I I have to serve other people too, right? (laughs) Not just you. This means you can become a clique, right? You can't just spend all your time with the same group of people. Jesus knew this. He lived by this. He knew that there was a point when he'd spent enough time focusing on a certain group of people and had to move on to the next group. This can be one individual moving on to the next individual. It doesn't mean you terminate relationships. It just simply means you should be spread enough that you're serving everyone that you have opportunity to serve who has need uh, and not just focusing on a certain group or being partial to a certain group. But we'll focus on verse 40, 42. He, it says he went to a, de- depart went to a deserted place. What do you think he did when he did that? He prayed, yep. Now, if you look in the next chapter, Chapter 5, verse 16 of Luke. <clears throat> well, actually, we'll start in verse 15. It says, The report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So, he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. He had so much demand placed on him that that put, in the, put him in the position that he had to withdraw often into the wilderness and pray. And if you look at the timing of this, it was a daily practice for him. Mark says that he rose early in the morning to pray. You'll find that the busier Jesus became, the more that he prayed. You will learn in order to be sustained spiritually, the more demand you have placed on you, the more you will, it will be required of you to pray and to have that intimacy with God. This is essential. Jesus lived by this daily and so did the apostles. One more example is in chapter 6 and verse 12 of Luke. Chapter 6 and verse 12 of Luke says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. All night. There were certain times when he would spend the whole night praying, and Jesus did this one time, fed the multitude of the 5,000, then got into a boat with his disciples and crossed the sea and got his sleep in the hole of the ship because he didn't get any sleep the night before, because he prayed the whole time. Which basically tells you that sometimes your sleep schedule is not always going to be, or your sleep is not always going to be at night. Which tells you that Jesus understood that sometimes night is not the appropriate time to sleep, depending on what the demand was that was placed on him. In other words, you can't be so rigid with your sleep schedule that you ignore opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise have, right? And so, point being, Jesus had a daily practice of time in prayer, in solitude, in secret. All of us should have this on a daily basis, whether this is early in the morning or late at night, wherever you get that time. For some people, it works better at night. For a lot of the time in my life, it works better at night. Now it works better for me early in the morning. It just depends on you and your situation and your schedule. So I gave you examples in Jesus' life. One example in regards to the apostles, and this transitions us into study of the word. Joshua 1 verse 8 says to meditate on the word day and night. So renewing your mind with scripture is meant to be a daily practice as well. Day and night, in fact, the Bible says. 
uh, in Luke 11, verse 3, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said that one thing we should pray is that the Lord would give us our daily bread. Your daily bread is not just about your food. It's about your daily uh, need for the Word of God as well. The Word of God is also bread that comes down from heaven, as Jesus said, which means that you should, on a daily basis, give some time to renew your mind with Scripture. How much time you give to that actually depends on you. Because the point, according to Joshua 1.8, is that you meditate on it day and night. doesn't mean you read it day and night, but you meditate on it day and night. The difference, or I should say, what causes diversity in how much time a person spends reading depends on how much they need to read in order to meditate on it constantly. One person might be able to read for five minutes and they think about it the whole day. One person might have to read for a whole day in order to make that happen. It depends on you. For you, you might need to take a whole day on the weekend where you just get away and just read the word and pray. Some people need that depending on how their mind is. But for the average person, I would say taking half an hour to an hour that includes both prayer and study usually is sufficient in order to be able to have something that you can focus on and think about for the rest of that day. For me, personally, it takes at least an hour of prayer and study, both of those things, to be able to think about it the rest of that day. That's just the way it is for me right now. Uh, it used to be more. I used to have to take three hours, which was, was difficult because I had to stay up pretty late usually on those days, but it just depends on you. So you need to know yourself. In, in this sense, I'm not going to lay down a law that says it has to be for this amount of time because however long it takes for you to focus on what you read the rest of that day is how much time you need to take. And that's different for everyone. So a scriptural example of this is 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 through 16. We will go over that real quick. 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 through 16. 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16. Paul is talk talking to Timothy, person that he discipled. It says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. The difference between reading and doctrine is that reading is reading. <laughs> doctrine is is taking what you read and letting it alter your beliefs. So it becomes your life doctrine, the principles by which you live. You have to have both. And the exhortation part means what you read should encourage you as well. So when you read, it should change how you think. That's the point. If you read something just to get the Bible to justify what you're already thinking, you've got a problem. Because we don't read the word to approve of how we're thinking. We read the word to change how we're thinking so that it more closely aligns with the spirit of God. Amen. That's why when you're listening to teaching as well, if you're listening to what you might call sermons, you know, whatever title you give to that, if you go to a church that just simply justifies or excuses how people commonly think and tries to use scripture to do that, that is a twisting of the purpose of the word of God. The word of God is meant to change how you think. So make sure what you read and the teaching, teaching that you receive is in alignment with that. And if you keep reading, it says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them 
that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. If you want to be saved, if you want to have progress, and if you want to have solidity in doctrine, you have to continue in these things, meditate on them, and give yourself entirely to them. That means what you believe, what you read, what you study in Scripture needs to be something you continue in. James chapter 1 says, don't be like somebody that looks once into the perfect law of liberty as into a mirror and then forgets what he looked like right afterwards. But if you look into the perfect law of liberty, it says, and continue in it. Be not only a, do not be a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Then you will be blessed in what you do. This means continuing in the word is an essential part of this. Give yourself to it. Meditate on it continually. That's the goal of scripture. This was a daily practice for Jesus. And it was also for the apostles. I do have to admit, though, that it was a little bit easier for Jesus because he was the word. So <laughs> he had a little bit of a cheat code, if that makes sense. Um, he was the Bible. In fact, when Jesus taught, one of the things that the Pharisees commented on and the Jews was it says that uh, they would say, how did this man get this wisdom having never studied? Which is interesting because <laughs> I wonder how they knew that, like, Jesus never studied, whatever that means, you know, um, study in the way that the Pharisees did was the point. And the Pharisees were, were very religious about it. Jesus, of course, still had to come to know the word of God. But I just think it's kind of humorous that the Pharisees commented that about him. Um, so I give you examples scripturally of that, ruining your mind daily. Last one, Jesus and the apostles, this won't be long, took planned times for rest on a daily basis. This includes your enjoyment, relaxation. Jesus sometimes would plan to sleep during travel. You can read about this in Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 38. <laughs> You've also got Mark chapter 6, verse 31, where Jesus specifically told his disciples, come aside after they worked and rest for a while. He planned for his disciples to rest and for him to rest. Then you have taking walks and snacking. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 says, Jesus and his disciples took a walk in the grain fields on the Sabbath, and they began to pluck heads of grain, rub it between their hands, and eat it. And the Pharisees found a reason to criticize them for it. <laughs> but Jesus sometimes took walks and snacked. <laughs> he did this on a consistent basis. He took naps sometimes in a boat while they were traveling, so that means you can nap in car rides as long as, as, long as you're not driving. Um, <laughs> And after long hours of work, you should plan times to rest. Now, here's where Christians commonly get this wrong. For most of us, we have our work day and include work for the kingdom as part of this labor. And whatever time you have left over, just like money, you use it all for rest. Most believers, whatever they have left over financially, they still think it's for them. So they use it on themselves. They do the same thing with time. Whatever time you have left over, Oh, that means I get to use it on myself. No, it's not what that means. Time you have left over, you're also required to be a good steward of. And if you do it the way that Jesus and the apostles did it, they planned and set aside time for their enjoyment, their relaxation, and their rest. And that was considered part of what they scheduled, if you will. 
whatever was left over after that was considered part of something they returned back into the cycle of giving and laboring. So let's take, take, for example, you have a day where, let's say you get off work at five o'clock if you work a nine to five job. Let's say that morning you took a couple hours, got up earlier, you had your time in study and prayer. At work, you kept a smile on your face, you met a few people, coworkers, talked to a few coworkers during your lunch break, you made some connections, got some relationships, you set up dinner with one of them at their house, let's say, for a later day in that week. You get home, it's five o'clock, you either make dinner, you have dinner, whatever it might look like, and now you're done, and you have the rest of the evening, let's say it's, I don't know, 6.30, 7 o'clock. Now, you have 7 o'clock until you go to bed. You can either take all that time and just say, oh, it's left over. I'll just, I don't know, watch movies for the rest of the night. Or you can say, okay, at the beginning of the day, how much time do I want to take today to rest? And plan it. Let's say I'm going to rest from 6.30 to 7.30. After that, I'm going to either take more time for prayer, I'm going to take more time for study. Maybe if you've got kids, I'm going to spend some time with uh, one of my children, take a walk, whatever, plan something with a neighbor. Point being, rather than using leftover time for yourself, that's excess and waste it, plan time to take rest and enjoyment, and whatever's left over after that, bring it back into what is productive. We are not, I am not dismissing the importance of rest because Jesus did not. Rest is important. Enjoyment is important. Um, it's, it should be a, a consistent and daily part of your life. The point is don't let it go to waste. And whatever rest you take that's beyond what you need is wasted. Rest you take beyond what you need is wasted. This includes your sleep. Proverbs says, do not love sleep. It's pretty straightforward. You can enjoy your sleep, but it says don't love it. In other words, it's not supposed to be something that you just relish every day. It should be something you take because you need time that you spend while you're awake to rest and enjoy yourself. That You should take what you need to do that. But whatever you take beyond what you need, again, is wasted. So think, just think about for yourself, how can I take leftover time and leftover resources and turn it into something that is not about me? How can I give it for the sake of somebody else in my life and not myself? And if I'm just to cycle this back to finances, this means, yes, you can set aside some of your money as part of your rest and enjoyment. Because sometimes taking rest, you'll spend some money. It might be going out to eat. It might be, uh, I don't know, visiting a national park and you got to pay for parking or, you know, Whatever it is that you're doing, sometimes taking that rest and enjoyment requires some of your own finances, and that's fine. That, that's, again, it's part of what you need, so you can set aside money for that. But again, Jesus' example was that whatever was left over after what was essential had been used up was always given or saved to, be then, to then be given later. So it's just up to you, whether it's your money or your time, to determine how much you need for rest. And for everyone, it's different. If you have a really, really, really hard and long day, sometimes you need more time for rest. If it's not as long and hard, you need less time for rest. So you just simply have to decide that for yourself, what it's going to be. So to wrap this up, everything I mentioned, well, to summarize it, your money, your physical health, 
the time you give for relationships with unbelievers, the time you give for relationships with other believers, your time for prayer and study, and your time for rest and joy. Do all these things daily, and you will be productive and faithful with your time. Do not waste time. Even your rest should be strict and intentional. Don't fill in all extra time with rest. That leads to waste. So plan it. Now, I mentioned ideally daily, but for, like I said earlier, for every person it's different. You might not be able to fit in to your daily schedule all six of these things or all five of these things. For me personally, just because of how my life runs right now, I am able on a daily basis to in the morning early get time for rest and prayer, or excuse me, study and prayer, to work for financial gain. For me, it's a hobby that I use to make money, plus work for the kingdom. That's my labor. I'm usually finished with that between 3 and 5 o'clock. After that, I can plan time for rest to be with my family. And after that, I can also take time to invest in a believer or an unbeliever in some way, shape, or form. And for me, in many cases, what we're working on more of now, specifically with my neighbors, is just having more dinners with people and doing that. And you can take evenings for that, and you can include your family in it as well. In fact, you should include your family in it in many cases, because if you invite an unbeliever over to your house, they should see the peace and orderliness of your home. That's a really, really important part of the kingdom. So that's why sometimes you can combine them. Sometimes, depending on the situation, family time and time with an unbeliever are the same, depending on how you go about it. Um, but that's up to you to determine. So for me, I, I can fit all, all five of these things in a single day, but I have to plan it. I have to schedule it. I have to put a lot of effort into making that happen. For you, just think about how much time do you give to your work, whatever you have left over, how can you be productive with that time? That means rather than doing what you want, do what you need. Do what's needed. You might think of rest as something you want. Rest is actually something that you need, but what you need is usually less than you think, right? So rather than doing what you want with time left over, do what's needed. And if you think about it that way, you'll be a lot more productive with your time.